0: sequence start. Space Nuts. Five four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, 5,
1: 4, 3, 2... 1, Space Nuts.
0: Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on the podcast we call Space Nuts. Uh, several hundred, maybe thousand to a pack these days, so I think we're going to have to just Make smaller packs because, you know, carrying around a pack of um, 10,000 space nuts is just, it's not feasible. Uh, We'll work on that. Um, But, uh, yeah, it's great to be with you once again Uh, after trial and tribulation and travel. We finally catch up with one Professor Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hey, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm really well. Now, you're sitting near a very small rock that um, was discovered in 1873 in Central Australia uh, and was dubbed by a surveyor named William Goss as Ayers Rock. But in 1993, the dual naming policy of the then government uh, had its name changed to the Aboriginal word of Uluru, one of the great wonders of this country.
1: Which apparently doesn't have any meaning. Apparently Uluru is just a name rather than something that you know, has a meaning to it. Uh, and it is, yes, it's um, it's one of the world's biggest, I don't think it is the world's biggest, but it's one of the world's biggest monolithic rocks, a mm. monolith.
0: And it just sticks out of the middle of nowhere. Yes. Uh, I've never actually been there, but it's one of my goals, one of the bucket list goals to go and have a look at it. Although uh, people used to be able to climb it, but I think that's just about to come to an end
1: if it hasn't already. It's, it is. It comes to an end very soon. Um, uh, are, you, are you and Marnie going to have a crack? Um, certainly not, no. <laughs> but Marnie's done it before, a long time ago, when it wasn't quite such a controversial issue to c- 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 climb as it is now. But she said it was very hard work. Yeah, so my climb. parents have done it and they said it was a really tough climb. Tough um, climb. Yeah.
0: yeah. And there have been fatalities in years gone by. So it's, but, not, it's not something for the faint-hearted, really. That's right. Mm, I'll be happy just to look at it.
1: Yes, so will I. Now,
0: today we are talking about uh, the Andromeda galaxy. Uh, It appears that um, our neighbour is very hungry and it's inviting itself over for lunch. Uh, We're also going to uh, look at uh, an asteroid breakup that um, may well have triggered an ice age. And we've got some uh, really good questions this week. Uh, A follow-up to last week's Planet uh, 9 theory uh, and how we might be able to identify... Planet Nine, if indeed it's a planet, maybe it's not. Uh, we got a, we got a question uh, which dates back a little while, but we're still playing catch up from uh, Kevin about Jupiter's clouds and a question of um, Mars becoming habitable once the sun starts to expand and Earth is no longer a place to be. So we'll tackle all that today on episode 174 of the Space Nuts podcast. Now, Fred, what's Andromeda up to and why is it inviting itself over for a feed?
1: It's a really good question as to whether it's our galaxy inviting Andromeda or Andromeda inviting our galaxy, because they're probably roughly the same size. It's actually not so easy to tell. Remember, uh, Andromeda is a galaxy rather similar in appearance to ours. It's, um, It's a large Flattened spiral, very much uh, the same shape as our Milky Way galaxy, and it's about two and a half million light years away. So it's relatively close in, uh, in in galactic terms. And in fact, Andromeda and our own galaxy are the two biggest members of something we call, rather parochially, the Local Group, the Local Group of galaxies. So uh, the big uh, where where the big cheese is in those galaxies. Now we know that, and we've known for some time that. Uh, these two galaxies are on a collision course uh, with about four and a half billion years being the the crunch time when they actually meet. what happens when that collision takes place is a little bit counterintuitive. It's because both galaxies have got so much empty space in them that not really a lot happens. <laughs> that you know, in, in terms of direct collisions between stars, there will probably be very few, if any, of those. But what will happen is the gravitational uh, interference of one galaxy with the other, with another. Uh, and this probably will work for both galaxies. Because both Andromeda and ourselves are pretty rich in hydrogen, uh, the raw material of stars, the, the collision uh, of these two hydrogen rich galaxies will almost certainly set up shock waves uh, as they come together, which will probably uh, uh, promote a burst of star formation. So there should be a lot of celestial fireworks in four and a half billion years' time. Quite a long time to wait, but. Your, your diary probably goes that far. Mine certainly does. Take a few um, more vitamins; we'll be right. <laughs> that's right. So, <laughs> excuse me. So that's um, that. <clears throat> that's part of the story uh, that's come from some work done by colleagues of mine in uh, in uh, here in Australia. Um, uh, uh, this is a study that is led by. Uh, uh, Dougal, God, getting getting his uh, first name wrong. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, My wife does that to me all the time. For it, it is Dougal. It's Dougal MacKay or MacKay, depending on whether you anglicise it or sorry, Scottify it or or austra- Australise it. Uh, he's he's at the ANU, Douglas at the ANU, but he's working with uh, Geraint Lewis, who's a, a friend and colleague from the University of Sydney. Geraint, of course, a good Welsh name. So you've got a good Scots name and a good Welsh name yeah. there together. Uh, they've done this work, uh, which is published in the uh, that prestigious journal Nature, um, and found evidence of uh, the Andromeda galaxy growing uh, by consuming other smaller galaxies as long ago as 10 billion years ago. Um, We know that our own galaxy has gobbled up smaller galaxies. In fact, it's in the process of doing that now with the two Magellanic clouds, which are kind of both on a death spiral within, uh, w- within the halo of our own galaxy, uh, being stripped of their stars by gravitational interactions, and those stars will find their, themselves part of the of the halo, the spherical halo uh, of stars that surrounds the flattened disk of the galaxy. So um, what uh, Grant and Dougal have done is looked at globular clusters in the Andromeda galaxy. Now, globular clusters are sort of more or less spherical clusters of stars. They were first identified by William Herschel back in the late uh, 1700s. Um, he uh, gave names to a lot of things, and globular clusters is one of the classes of objects that he named. Um, the We believe that they are we now believe that they are the sort of stripped down nuclei of dwarf galaxies. Um, in other words, they, they once had a, their own large retinue of stars, not a hundred billion or so like <clears throat> the two big galaxies or several hundred billion, but more like a, you know, few billion perhaps uh, to make up a dwarf galaxy. <clears throat> so, excuse me, I'm losing my voice as you do when you come to Uluru. Um, the, uh, the, the, the studies that um, Geraint and Dougal have done have identified two globular clusters, which they believe are probably the stripped down remains of dwarf galaxies that were eaten, as I said, about 10 billion years ago by, uh, by the Andromeda galaxy. But what's really interesting is that they are in uh, the, the globular clusters are in orbits around the Andromeda galaxy, but the the two orbits are at right angles to each other, and that suggests that the the two dwarf galaxies that were eaten up by Andromeda came from two different directions at right angles to one another, and that kind of strikes a chord because we believe that uh, the underlying framework of of the way galaxies are distributed in space is something we call the cosmic web. And it's basically a a scaffolding of dark matter, if I can put it that way, which... uh, which the hydrogen congregates to because of the gravity of the dark matter, and in in doing that, then you get galaxies formed under under their mutual self gravitation. So what the suggestion is that these two globular clusters have come from two different bits of the cosmic web, if I can put it that way. The cosmic web's like this giant honeycomb almost of of dark matter. And if you imagine galaxies being strung out along the cosmic web, and then there's Andromeda sitting perhaps at, at a place where two of these web-like stru- uh, structures come together, that is why you've got this—you uh, know—these two globular clusters in orbits at right angles to each other. And so, what they're suggesting is that uh, each of them uh, is symptomatic of a feeding frenzy by the Andromeda galaxy, but two separate ones, which might be separated by billions of years. There's still work to be done on this, but it's a really interesting idea.
0: And the question remains, what happens in 4.5 billion years' time when we intersect with Andromeda. And you've already said we're already consuming uh, some of these dwarf galaxies, so yeah. Andromeda's doing the same thing. But when you put two heavyweights together, what is, <laughs> what is, the, uh, what is the effect?
1: Well, they beat one another up, basically, because yes. they're pretty yeah. well matched. And so um, there's some, there are simulations on, uh, on the web showing what will happen to these two giant spirals when they are, come are together. Are they
0: likely to merge permanently or pass through each other?
1: Yeah, they will merge permanently, but it, it will be a long and painful process because what will happen at first is they'll, the stars will pass through, uh, their stars will pass through one another. Um, and, um, you know, so effectively one galaxy moves through the other, but uh, it doesn't leave either of them unscathed because it pulls the spiral arms out into almost straight lines. It kind of unwinds the spiral arms of the galaxies uh, in a way that we, can see elsewhere in the universe where there are other pairs of galaxies that have collided there 's a very well known pair of galaxies called the antennae because they look like the antennae of an ant uh, and they 've got you know they' strings strings of stars um, <laughs> strung out along the antennas so that will be what our galaxy the, the, the merge pair look like after you know maybe a billion years or half a billion years after the collision but eventually they'll all come back together and you'll get a really messy uh single galaxy made out of the two and probably and here's another interesting aspect of this uh the the black holes the supermassive black holes at the center of our two galaxies will combine oh. uh, that itself will so that's unavoidable come. that's just going to happen I think that will happen, yeah. Especially if there's something like a direct hit, and that's the way it seems to be at the moment. Looking at the the future, wow, fascinating.
0: Uh, yeah, well, you know, we'll just have to be patient while we wait for this to happen, so we can we can see it all. It'll it'll <laughs> it'll change the sky even before the the the, the conglomeration happens. I imagine that um, you know anyone or anything that's around at that time. We'll, we'll see the sky completely differently to the way we're seeing it now, I, I would
1: imagine. Yeah, that's right. When You know, in the in the lead-up to the collision, there'll be a gigantic spiral galaxy in the sky as well as the Milky Way itself, mm. which we're about to see. So it will be very dramatic.
0: And, and what a picture, I know somebody's uh, wondering, but what of Earth if it's still around then?
1: Yeah, so there has been a suggestion that, um, you know, Earth will pass through all this unscathed. Of course, by then... It's us getting pretty warm because the sun's turning into a red dwarf, sorry, a red giant by then. Yeah. And I think that's what we're going to talk about in one of the questions. But um, it would be bad luck for the sun and its family of planets to be flung out of the this uh, merged galaxy. But it's not impossible because there will be stars that will be flung out into space. I'm sure.
0: It sounds like a corporate takeover.
1: Exactly so.
0: Uh, On a (laughs) universal scale. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll just have to be patient and, and watch that one very, very slowly. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, Now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, So protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com/slash space. That's T R Y E X P R E S S V P N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now back to the show.
1: Zero G and I feel fine.
0: Space nuts. Now, Fred, uh, as we have been doing each week, uh, just a, a big, big thank you to our patrons who put a couple of dollars in each month to support the podcast. There are fifty-six of them now. And we have a question from one of our patrons, which we'll be answering shortly or endeavouring to do so. Uh, so thank you to everybody who uh, has has uh, decided to join us and, um, and just put a few dollars each month in to uh, keep the podcast going. We really do appreciate it. It's a wonderful gesture. Uh, it's certainly not uh, something you have to do. But the fact that you want to do it, um, it's very humbling, and we we greatly appreciate it. So thank you very much, and uh, more to come uh, with um, those who join Patreon dot com slash Space Nuts because we're uh, we're working on value adding. I guess is the best way to uh, to put that. So um, thank you again, and of course, if you do want to do that, uh, go to Patreon dot com slash Space Nuts and um, choose choose whatever level you want to join at it's uh, it's not expensive at all now fred we are going to look at this um particular asteroid smash up as they're describing it which dates back 460 plus million years and now it's thought that this particular event may have caused an ice age on earth that uh, that sounds rather unusual or interesting or both
1: <laughs> yeah it's um I mean, when we talk about asteroids, we, uh, particularly prehistoric ones like this, we uh, we think of the dinosaur smasher, the dinosaur asteroid collision, Mm. which happened sixty six million years ago, and uh, basically an asteroid hit the surface of the Earth, something maybe about fifteen kilometres in diameter, and the debris from that explosion, very, from, from that impact, very quickly. Uh, blanketed the earth with dust and debris and caused a sudden drop in temperature. And this is a drop that, you know, might have only taken um, months or even days or weeks rather than years or decades. It was very quick. And it's that that uh, caused the demise of the dinosaurs because they basically had nowhere to go. The the, the thing happened so quickly that, um, uh, you know, their environment was effectively totally destroyed.
0: Yeah, that's why goldfish die. People pour cold water into a fish tank. It's
1: the same thing. There (laughs) you go. There you go. A little bit of um, uh, um, uh, folklore from Andrew Duncan (laughs) (laughs) Don't pour cold water into your fish tank. No, they need to acclimatise. it's got the same effect as the asteroid had on the dinosaurs, but this is a different sort of collision. This, th- there is evidence, um, and I'll come to that in a minute. But there is evidence that about 466 million years ago, well, 400 million years longer back in the past than than the dinosaur demise, there was not a, a collision of an asteroid with the Earth, but a collision of an asteroid with. Another one, a, probably a smaller one. Ah, oh, um, it's the smash-up. Yeah, the big one is thought to have been 150 kilometres in diameter, which is actually 10 times the diameter of the astro- of the one that killed off the dinosaurs. So you've got this object, 150 kilometres in diameter. Something runs into it. Probably it may even have been one as big, but, you know, whatever it was, there was an impacting object which effectively demolishes the, the big asteroid uh, Reduces it to rubble, so um, the uh, that basically has a number of effects. Um, but the bottom line is, it fills up the inner solar system with dust. Uh, so there's some interesting numbers here. Uh, we know that something like one percent of the dust in the Earth's atmosphere today is is from a meteorite. It's meteoritic. Yeah. But the, uh, the, million, the few million years after that breakup of that asteroid, 466 million years ago, um, that put 10,000 times more dust into the Earth's atmosphere. So, you know, it, it just means that uh, that's the, the, the meteoritic dust increases by a factor of 10,000. And so what you've got is a blanket of dust in the Earth's atmosphere that reduces the temperature. Uh, what you also have is, uh, is dust in the inner solar system, uh, which uh, reduces the amount of sunlight that's coming from the sun to the planet. So you've got a double whammy here. Uh, the sunlight's reduced, but also the, uh, the atmosphere, the, you know, the opacity of the atmosphere. It's um, uh, the, the, the light that it absorbs uh, or, or, sh- or shadows that also reduces the radiation falling on the surface. So for a long period, the Earth's temperature is lower. Now, the evidence for this comes from micrometeorites in the geological layer that is that coincides with this 466 million-year-old impact. Um, the geologic, geological layer over a period of, I think, something like 2 million years is... Uh, is characterized by these micrometeorites in the in the basically in the strata uh, I think they are approximately the size of a coin they 're quite small they 're just little bits of debris but they tell you that there is also dust um, dust in the uh, in the uh, in the atmosphere uh, uh, sorry as well as the dust in the atmosphere there's There's micrometeorites. Somebody's ringing me there, so I'm just sending a message. (laughs) That's why. That's why I'm blank. Yeah.
0: If you Um, want to get a phone call, start recording a podcast.
1: A podcast, yeah, exactly. Quite so. (laughs) So, um, and of course. People like me are hopeless at multitasking i can 't talk and think at the same time, um, so yeah, so micrometeorites are, are what tell you that there was a lot of stuff in the earth 's atmosphere because that 's found its way into the geological record mm-hmm. uh, but it 's a slow process. This is the key thing, um, and that uh, is the really interesting part of this story because yes, uh, exactly as you 've said it it basically created an ice age, but that ice age. Was so gentle and slow in coming that unlike the phenomenon where the dinosaurs were wiped out, what happened is evolution was ahead of the, ahead of the game. Uh, so um, species evolved in, um, because of the fact that the temperature was cooling, they evolved to cope with that. And actually, instead of an extinction, you get what is known in the trade apparently as the Great Ordovician Biodiversification Event, or the Gobi, Great Ordovician Biodiversification Event. And that's telling you that there, there were more species. Uh, you know a huge blossoming in the number of species uh one author commenting uh in this on on the cosmos uh web page is actually Richard Lovett, who's always got away with words he talks about their um you know, not a mass extinction, but an evolutionary kick in the pants for life to adapt. Um, and that's what gave you this this Gobi, the great Ordovician. So in, bio- in real terms, it was the
0: opposite to the dinosaur asteroid. Yeah, and, right. and it was a slow burner and life kind of just exploded as a result of yeah, the effects of this. Yeah, that's, that's right.
1: A bit counterintuitive, but um, people seem to, you know, the, the commentators on this work who are not connected with it, uh, they seem to like the idea. They think that's a really good, uh, a really good explanation for this biodiversification event that until now, I think, has has lacked um, a, a mechanism uh, mm. that would have caused it. So really interesting stuff. And as you said, you know, counterintuitive, uh, although uh, there is a big difference between a dyna- between an asteroid hitting the Earth uh, and two asteroids colliding in between Mars and, and Jupiter in the main asteroid belt.
0: Now, some, as you said, some of that dust ended up in, on Earth and cooled the planet and ice age and blossoming life. Is there still evidence of that
1: collision around us, outside the planet? It's in space. Yeah. Um, I don't think there is. Um, I think what would have happened, I mean, 466 million years is a long time for the dust to dissipate through the, you know, it, the, the the rubble essentially uh it, it, it was thick for a while but now it's clear it's a bit because like we, we passed dust- through the remnants of comets that's i guess what i'm getting uh, at yeah that's right which but you're talking there about you know decades or hundreds of years that yeah. the, the dust cloud this is millions this is millions of years so it's it's a bit like those dust storms that whiz by your city we had one yesterday the day, and there was yeah there was a dust storm
0: on its way there's a city down the road from us called orange
1: we're thinking we need to change names
0: because yes. we've, we've, yeah. our city's been orange every other day due to dust storms in recent, in recent
1: weeks. But, but they do dissipate. That's yeah. the thing,
0: uh,
1: as does dust in the end. Well, the soil.
0: interesting, I know this is a bit of a sideline, but the interesting part about yesterday's dust storm is we were blanketed for most of the day and the whole sky was orange and then yeah. it cleared and the sky was blue and then it came again. So <laughs> it was a weird yeah. day. It was a truly weird day.
1: I have photographs um, from, or a photograph from Siding Spring Observatory mm. taken actually this morning that shows uh, basically the whole district enveloped in dust. It's, uh, it's clearly a big problem up there.
0: Yeah, we'll, we've, we've got um, the drought, which uh, I got the latest climate data yesterday and it, uh, it, it's very, very bleak. We are looking at less than a 30% chance of median rain for summer. Spring, I mean, going yeah. into a, going into a hot summer, we've we've already seen the fire season start, and there are lots of houses being burnt down north of us, and that is how the fire season works here. It goes north to south, uh, so we're not yep. into the thick of it yet. So uh, yeah, it's it's a really it's a very big worry. Our dam is down to four percent, and they're talking about. Um, you know, running out of water in the not-too-distant future, although people are arguing over when that might happen. Some are saying, oh, we've still got 10 years worth, and some are saying, no, there's only two. So who knows? I mean, when the authorities start arguing, you just throw your arms up and walk away. But um, yeah, it's, it's um, you know, dust is an interesting subject, believe it or not. It, uh, it sounds boring, but it basically is everywhere in everything and has had a huge effect on our lives. Uh, over millions of years. So here we are. And we continue to get dusted out. Uh, I I think the government should invest in giant space vacuum cleaners and then we'll be fine. Solve all our problems. Yeah, Yeah, but that one's interesting. So um, the, the great... The, the Gobi, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to even try and say what it was, but uh, 466 million years ago, which caused a, um, a slow ice age and a blossoming of life. Very, very good. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here, Fred Watson, just over there.
1: here
0: Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, we are got to bump off a few questions, which uh, makes it sound like we're going to make inroads into our question list, but uh, a couple of these came in today. <laughs> And uh, one of them came in uh, in 2001. Uh, and we'll <laughs> we'll be bumping those off. But, um, yeah, we've made no inroads into lessening the size of the question list. But we will uh, probably do another episode soon where we just tackle questions. Uh, so um, stand by. Uh, if you have sent us questions, uh, chances are it will get on. But if it's been answered in another episode because someone else asked a similar thing, we we tend to skip it so uh, if you haven't heard your question answered chances are someone else asked it and it was answered in an episode that you may not have heard yet or you might have missed or something so start at 1 just work your way through it catch up to 174 and you should it should be covered fair enough probably not anyway let's uh, let's move on uh now our first question comes from a um um Someone who who actually asked the question through uh, Patreon, Fred, and uh, it reflects on last week's episode when we talked about what Planet 9 could be. We've been looking for a planet, but now they're thinking it may not be a planet. It could be, you know, uh, a black hole or or a – what was the word we used – Primordial black hole. Primordial black hole. So uh, this comes from David Finlay, and thank you, David, for your um, um, question and and for being a patron too. Uh, He said, um, Re 173, episode 173, Planet Nine, would such a black hole moving across the star field produce a detectable halo? I recalled the old dark matter concept of uh, machos, and uh, IIRC I'm not sure he, what he means there I might be pronouncing it wrong uh, there were surveys looking for them against background star fields so what do you think of that
1: yeah so it's a good question um, this it's so uh, exactly as uh, uh, I'm sorry I don't have uh, this email in front of me so I've forgotten his name David tell me David, exactly as David says, sorry, David, I'm, um, I'm sitting a, a long way away from Andrew. Uh, the, um, uh, the idea of machos, massive compact halo objects, which included the possibility of small black holes, and uh, by that I mean Earth or stellar mass black holes, um, was indeed ruled out during the 1990s by uh, a number of experiments, most notably one at Mount Stromlo Observatory in here in Australia, uh, where a very um, venerable telescope, uh, which was then called the 50-inch, but actually goes back to uh, its origins as the great Melbourne telescope in 1869, uh, that was used to look for uh, what's called a gravitational microlensing event. So if you've got lots of black holes as they flit through deep space, they pass in front of distant stars and rather than block them out, they actually magnify the light of distant stars. So you should see, um, you know, a star brighten up and then fade away with a very, very characteristic light curve or shape of the, the profile of of the brightening. Uh, and they were not seen in the numbers that were expected. If machos was what dark matter was, and that was one of the key things that ruled out that idea for dark matter. The situation with uh, Planet 9 being a microscopic primordial black hole is probably different but not that much different in order for this microlensing process to work you've got to have very great distances between the the lensed object and the lensing object, if I can put it that way, in other words, the background star uh, and the foreground black hole, or whatever it is, they've got to be a long way apart. Uh, as do, do we, as the observer on the Earth. Now, that would not be the case with uh, with the Planet Nine hypothesis uh, if it was a, a primordial black hole uh, of a few Earth masses rather than the planet. Um, so I'm not. Um, I I'm not. Uh, certain of what the effect would be, given the geometry, given the distance from ourselves to this hypothetical object, and the distance from that to the star behind it, which is being lensed. Uh, And it may well be that it it doesn't work. You don't get the the microlensing phenomenon. On the other hand, you might. Um, So I am not sure uh, which of these would be the case. Uh, But it's an interesting idea. And one not to be dismissed. I think um, it's a very good comment. Thank you very much, David. Wonderful.
0: Thanks, David. Appreciate the question and uh, hopefully uh, it gave you a bit of an indication that you might be on the money. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, but they keep looking. They're, they'll find this thing eventually and then we'll go,
1: ah, right.
0: Should have known that's what it was
1: should have guessed yeah
0: and we probably have now uh, moving on here's a question from Kevin Rutherford hi Kevin here's a question about Jupiter's clouds every image I've ever seen shows complex swirls of many colours but if Jupiter is a big ball of gas over 4 billion years old, why haven't the swirling currents caused all the different coloured constituents to merge into a single homogenous cloud, like milk stirred up in a cup of tea, for example? Does the existence of these variegated colours imply that the cloud systems are being constantly replenished with new materials? or, or And if so, where might these come from? Hmm.
1: So it, it, the way to think of this is very much like the weather on the Earth. We have, um, you know, we have characteristic uh, weather patterns. Um, you've only to look at uh, the the wind patterns on the Earth to, to find that we get bands of winds in different directions. The Roaring Forties, for example, and the yeah. Trade Winds, things that that are all very common parlance. Well, if Some you what- look at satellite. Uh, footage that's sped up.
0: You can see the same kind of effect as we see on Jupiter with the cloud movements.
1: So these are cloud movements uh, high in Jupiter's atmosphere. Um, I, I, I don't think there's any implication that they're being replenished with new material, although there may be some hint of that. For example, we know the Great Red Spot. Which is a cyclone, is very very deep. It's it goes very very deep into the atmosphere. So that that might be churning stuff up from lower down. But generally speaking, I think the materials um, or the, the the chemical constituents, the things that give the clouds of Jupiter their colours and their different structure, are very much akin to what happens on the Earth. It's to do with uh, you know the the fact that the climate is different uh, from one latitude to the next. Mm. Um, what would be surprising would be if, uh, if it uh, you know if if, the, if they went the other way from the rotation or something like that vertically rather than horizontally, but the clouds follow very much the same sort of patterns as we see them on Earth. Now the 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 more remote the more distant gas giants, starting with Saturn, of course, and then onto uh, Uranus and Neptune, they have got much. Uh, much um, less distinct clouds in their atmospheres. And I don't think that is put down to it being the, the phenomenon that Kevin's talking about. When you stir milk into a cup of tea, it just becomes uniform. I think it's more to do with the fact that the, the, the cloud... Uh, clouds on these planets are actually lower down in the atmosphere. The, the the structure is there, but it's actually lower down, and so you don't see it, uh, anything like as clearly as you do on the planet Jupiter. And that's because it's cooler. They're all uh, colder planets. They're further out in the solar system. They don't have the same heat input that Jupiter has. Um, that's a fairly wishy-washy and woolly answer, but I think that's the bod- that that's the basic point, you know, that, that weather systems tend to stick where they are and, and don't just mix up. There you
0: go. And, yeah, just like on Earth. So, yeah. Thanks, uh, Kevin. Great question. I'm sure a lot of people have wondered about that one. Okay, Uh, now this question came in um, yesterday, Fred, through the Space Nuts podcast group. So a lot of uh, our Space Nuts listeners who are part of the group have um, put in their tuppence worth, and uh, fair enough too. But uh, I I just saw it, and because it was addressed to us, uh, I thought it's a good question to ask. It's in two parts. Uh, from Matt Brown. Hi, Matt. Thanks for your question. Uh, G'day, guys. I used to listen to the podcast a heap when operating machines on mines. I've got a new role now and still trying to find time. Well, I'm glad you found time for us uh, to send the question in, Matt. Um, A question for you both. As the sun expands and Earth moves out of the habitable zone, which we talked about earlier, will Mars move into it and how long um, before it also gets too hot? That's part one. Do you want to tackle that or do you want to hear the next bit first? <laughs> Let's do it all at once. Okay. Give Part a- two, as Mars uh, moves into the habitable zone, we know it doesn't have plates like Earth, hence how Olympus Mons became so large. Will it go through a very violent volcanic era and be almost unlivable as it heats up? Will it crack its giant superplate and melt its own polar regions to become more Earth-like?
1: Mm. Yeah, great questions. Um so it's really the habitable zone that moves, um, you know, to, to 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 move out into the solar system as the as the sun becomes a red giant. And yes, the Earth will eventually move out of the habitable zone; it will get too hot for us uh, as the as the sun expands. And Mars the will same move. Same time it to, as Andromeda crashes into us. <laughs> it's, it's a bit sooner, I think. I think actually oh, this happens right. to before before the the crash. So. You know, we it might spoil our view of the Andromeda collision. Um, Mars uh, will become; it'll receive more solar radiation, so it will become warmer. But in order for plate tectonics to kick in, it's the it's the core of Mars that needs to be hot. And I think they're talking about temperatures which are much higher than what you would get from radiation. Uh, uh, until you know it was at such a level that the planet was almost melting because it was it was so hot uh, so the the core of the, the the iron core of the earth is is somewhere between 6 and 7000 degrees celsius uh and that's kind of hotter than what you would get from being immersed in the outer atmosphere of a red giant star so it's unlikely that you'd kick in plate tectonics um until Mars was almost being swallowed up by, by the uh, by the by the bloated sun, so I don't think it's. Um, I, I think the scenario of hideous volcanism and things like that is probably nearer the the truth than the place just becoming gently more habitable because it's got suddenly develops a carbon cycle because it's got plate tectonics. Um, it, uh, Mars is an interesting case. You know, we talk about terraforming Mars, but uh, the fact is the planet's too small to hang on to any kind of gasses that will be useful to us as humans mm. they it's just too small a world so and and i think uh, subtle effects like that will probably still be in play uh, if mars was being heated by by the sun uh in this early red giant phase so i i think i don't i don't think mars is ever going to offer a uh, a really good holiday destination for people who are trying to escape the, the desert landscape of the Earth uh, in this post-apocalypse era. Yes. You might be trying to explain it, escape it sooner with your dust storms.
0: Yeah, Andrew. well, yeah, we, we're starting to become Mars-like here. Everything's covered in red dust.
1: Um, my, my... You, look a bit, you look a bit like a Martian on the screen I, there.
0: I do, yes. I'm, I've got red headphones that were white earlier so. and i've got a red car which has always been red but now it's redder so yeah. it's um unfortunately it's just something we can't avoid uh but yeah it's a good question um I, I suppose the only way to make mars habitable would be to create microclimates artificially so um domes and things like that perhaps if yeah. technology allows in the future yeah. and and yeah. create your own mini environments under the domes or something like that i don't uh, Doubt that the day will come where there'll be hotels on Mars. It'll be a hol- it will be a holiday destination. Um, I, I think that that time will come. Uh, I, I heard today that uh, was it Boeing uh, was going to inject some dollars into space tourism. So everyone's trying to get in on this. It's
1: becoming a big thing. Indeed,
0: that's right. Yeah, and, and um, thank you very much for your question, Matt. Much appreciated. And thank you to everybody who's listening, listened, and contributed. And don't forget the podcast group. If you want to um, you know, mix your ideas with uh, fellow space nuts, uh, you can do that at the uh, Facebook uh, Space Nuts Podcast Facebook Group. The Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. Good grief. We've got to think of a better name. Anyway, we're, we're stuck with it now. So, um, uh, But I, I do keep an eye on it and occasionally do comment there. So uh, they're having a lot of fun, Fred, I must say. Uh, good. Thank you, sir, for your contribution this week. Enjoy Uluru. Yes, I
1: will. Thank you very much. And, and we um, catch Yeah, we'll
0: with catch, you catch up you real soon. Next. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you very much, Andrew. I think we just did, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, um, the... the and the crashing of the asteroids into each other finish. I think we just Yes, heard. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> the collision ending. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Fred. We'll see you soon. See you later. See, that worked. And from me, uh, thanks again. We'll catch you on another edition of... Space Nuts.
1: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
0: Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favorite podcast distributor.
1: This has been another quality podcast production from sites.com